I want to use an example, uh, but before I do, I need to ask something of you. I, I need to ask you to make me a promise that you're not going to turn my example into a political statement. Can you do that? No? Rob can't. All right. Cover your ears, Rob. For the rest of you, uh, in, in the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump was speaking at the Family Leadership Summit in Ames, Iowa. The moderator of the summit asked him whether he has ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said this, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. A lot of people say a lot of things about President Trump, but if that is an accurate representation of his personal prayer life, one thing you can't say about him is that he's a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who prays for forgiveness. You may be impressive. You may be important. You might become the President of the United States, but a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing else. You see, prayer is uniquely revealing. Prayer uncovers what we think about ourselves. Prayer reveals what we actually believe about God. Prayer exposes what we actually care about when nobody else is listening. And so perhaps for that reason, Paul is always modeling in his letters what the prayer life of the Christian ought to look like. Beyond these basics of, of faith and repentance, he's writing to people who claim to be Christians beyond those basics. How should the believers approach the Lord? What are the sorts of things we should expect of him? How should we navigate our own needs in prayer? How should we pray for the gospel and, and for the church? Paul shows us what we should be praying for. He also shows us who we should be on our knees before God. In this passage today, I, I simply want to draw your attention to three prayers that we should be praying as Christians, three priorities to shape our prayer life. The first is that Christians should pray for the victory of the gospel. We should pray for the victory of the gospel. Verse 1, finally, brothers, he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's saying, you know how it happens. You remember your own experience when the gospel came to your town, when suddenly your whole life, your whole outlook, and your whole worldview was changed. You were a person who had no faith, a person walking in darkness, separated from God and from his promises and from his people, and suddenly the gospel came to you. And your heart was changed by the message of Jesus Christ, and he's saying to them, if you remember that, dear believer, won't you pray that others will experience the same? Won't you pray that others will also know the joy of believing? Won't you pray, he's saying, for the victory of the gospel? It's a reminder, I think, first of all, that our prayer lives should reach beyond ourselves. There's nothing wrong with praying for your own needs. That's part of the privilege of being a child of God and knowing that as his children we can make requests and that he will actually hear them. 
Right? That's a wonderful thing, and we ought to make good use of that privilege. It's good to pray for ourselves. Jesus taught us to pray, give us our bread, and forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. There's nothing wrong with petitionary prayer for yourself, but Paul's asking the church to be intercessors for others. To extend their prayers beyond the circle of their own daily circumstances. He's reminding them not to forget to pray for God's kingdom to come. For his will. He's he's praying, he's telling them to pray for the word of the Lord, he says, to speed ahead and be honored. He's telling them, in a sense, that it's a good thing in our prayers uh, for our priorities to mirror God's priorities. Have you ever stopped to consider that there is a wrong way to pray? That there are requests that believers ought not to make of the Lord. That's not a very popular teaching in wider Christian circles. We've tried to to make prayer so, uh, so accessible. We've tried to make God seem so approachable that we speak of prayer as just talking to your best buddy. You know how it is when you talk to your best buddy. You can say anything that's on your mind. You, you can just let fly whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you need. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it's something that's good or something that's bad. That's how we show our authenticity. And so uh, in the wider Christian world, we encourage this sort of stream of consciousness prayer. We don't want anybody feeling awkward. We don't want anybody second-guessing whether they're praying for the right thing. But the Bible says there's a wrong way to pray. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. James says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What is the wrong way to pray? The wrong way to pray is to make our prayers extensions of our own selfish desires. It is to ask God for all the things that make life externally enjoyable and personally pleasurable without a care in the world for the glory of God for the extension of his kingdom rule in the world. And the corrective to that kind of prayer is to make our prayers an exercise in spiritual reorientation. I wonder if you think about prayer in that way. That prayer is not how we get what we want from God, but how he works what he wants in us into us. Prayer is the place where we we come to the creator of the universe and we say, make good on the promises that you have given us. Make your people desire the things that you have said are desirable. Make your priorities the most important thing in the life of the church. I'm sure that some of you people who who know physics uh, or music better than I do could probably explain it better, but there is a phenomenon in the world of acoustics known as sympathetic resonance. It's something that happens most often with stringed instruments. Right? A note or a chord struck at, at one place in the vibrations of the air, the vibrations of the instrument, uh, they take up to the other strings that share the same harmonic frequency, and those ones start to sound as well. It's one of the reasons that pianos are built with dampening pedals, so that you don't hear the strings you don't want to hear. Right? Because the acoustic pull of the instrument is so strong that a note struck two octaves lower will start to resonate uh, with its buddy up the chain a, a few octaves. 
Right? There's, there's a sort of thing that just, that just happens as, as the vibrations transfer along and they start to resonate together. That's what prayer is meant to be. The Lord, in His Word, reveals His will for the world, and as He does, that note resounds in the heart of a believer. Prayer is an act of, of tuning our wills and our desire to the will and desire of the Lord and letting those notes ring out undampened. So you can imagine, perhaps, all of, all of the other daily things, the important things that the Thessalonians also had to pray for. They had sick kids like you have sick kids. They worried about their futures. They worried about their finances. They were trying to figure out how to mend their broken relationships. They struggled with indwelling sin and personal temptation, and all of those things are worth praying for. But Paul is saying, don't forget to pray for the victory of the gospel. Don't forget to pray for us, he says. Pray for the priorities of God in the world. Pray for the advance of Christian ministry. Wherever you are, whatever Christian ministry is going on around you, pray for the victory of the gospel in the world. He uses this language. He says, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That imagery comes uh, from the world of athletics. It's a common theme in the New Testament. Paul often talks about the Christian life as a sort of endurance race that we have to be engaged in. It's something we have to be ready for, something we have to persist in. But here, he's not talking about the Christian running, but the Word of God running. And running ahead so that it, it gains the victory. You know, when you, when you play t-ball, when you're in grade school, everybody gets a trophy just for pitching in, don't they? But at the higher level of competition, at the Olympics, at the, at the games that were held in Corinth where Paul was writing uh, this letter, the Isthmian Games, you could only be the winner if you were actually the winner. Right? It was only the first place finisher that got to claim the crown of glory. That's what he's saying, that the gospel would speed ahead, that it would run on ahead, that it would be glorified by those who see it. It would be honored. That it would overtake the vain philosophies of uh, of, of worldly wisdom that turn people away from their, their sin and their need for a Savior. He's saying, let's pray that, that the gospel of Christ and Him crucified would be preeminent above the unbelieving chatter and noise uh, that, that markets itself as what we really need. It's a priority worth praying for. So Paul says, pray for us. Pray for the victory of the gospel. Secondly, he tells us that we ought to be praying for the security of God's people. Pray for the security of God's people. Verse 2. He said, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, and also that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now it's clear, the way that Paul writes these words, that this second prayer request is really an extension of the first one. You see that? He's not just asking for his own personal safety, again, not that that would be a bad thing, right? The God of the gospel is also the God of our bodies. On any given Sunday, we pray for any number of merely physical things. We shouldn't get so strung into the, the, uh, the, the mistake of thinking that our prayer has to be so spiritually focused that we can only pray for spiritual things. Wouldn't be a bad thing if he was asking merely for his personal safety, but that's not what he's asking for. He's asking for safety so that. Right? He's, he's asking for security with an ulterior motive. 
He's asking for protection against people who wanted to silence the message of Jesus. You see, Paul's deliverance and and the deliverance of Silas and Timothy along with him, it meant continued Christian ministry. It meant that the gospel would continue going forward, that it would speed ahead, that as they're able to get the message out, others would hear it, and God would call his elect from the nations unto himself. So he's asking the church to ask the Lord to make them secure enough to carry the word of God as far as God wants them to. It's the same thing that we pray every week for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Sure, we pray for their safety, but we also pray for their witness. We pray for their security so that, so that parents can pass on the faith to their children, so that families can be uh, a blessing in their neighborhoods with the gospel, so that churches can stand as a beacon for Christ in the midst of a dark and disbelieving world. It's the same thing we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. It's the same thing we pray for our unpersecuted missionaries. Right Before Landon Roland went to Uganda, we gathered around in prayer, and we prayed for things like flights to Entebbe Airport to get there on time. We prayed for his sinuses when he was starting to develop a cold. We prayed for his study. We prayed for his sleep. We prayed for his conversations. We prayed for his safe return. And, of course, we prayed for all of those things because we like Landon. We can't wait to see him again and hear about what he was doing. But we also prayed because he was going to carry the word of the Lord. And so we joined together in prayer for God's security for him. It's another form of what... Paul's asking the church to pray for. He says, pray for us that we would be delivered. Paul's speaking there. He he talks about wicked and evil men. He's he's speaking there in what seems to be pretty general categories. He doesn't give us a list uh, of the individuals who are against him, who are are opposing his message or his ministry. It it seems to be something like uh, the statement that he made in Acts chapter 20. You may remember that. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he stops by Ephesus uh, to talk to the elders who are there to tell them about his ministry and where he's going. Acts chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. uh, He says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It seems to be the normal course of Paul's ministry. It seems to be one of the things that people are upset about. They say, you know, Paul couldn't possibly be an apostle. Look how much he suffers. No, no, no. This is, this is par for the course, he says. Afflictions and imprisonment, opposition and antagonism everywhere I go. Most of the opposition he encountered came from uh, the Jewish population. Most often it came uh, from, from his former fellow Pharisees because they thought that he was trying to overturn the teachings of Moses and so they opposed what he was doing. Other times, like it happened in Ephesus, the opposition came from the Gentiles. The gospel showed up in a city and, and the pagans found out just how much the supremacy of Christ confronted their idol-filled culture and they didn't like it. Actually, in verse 2, Paul uses some language that's closer to home either than than the Jews or the pagans. So in our English Standard Version, the word is wicked. If you've got a King James, it says uh, unreasonable. Literally, the word means out of place. 
It means without standing. It's a word that seems to indicate some kind of twisting of what ought to be the case, some kind of rejection of what you would normally expect. And so several scholars point out that probably what he's talking about is opponents of the gospel from within the visible church. False Christians masquerading as true Christians who have no real love for Jesus Christ, no zeal to see the gospel go forward and to run on to victory in the world. That makes sense, actually, of the larger context we've just seen in chapter 2. Paul was warning about apostasy. He was talking about the mystery of lawlessness. Greg Beale explains it this way. He says, the evil men of verse 2 are evil because they're out of place among God's people. They are either false teachers or they are following such teaching and its associated ungodly lifestyle. Now, if Beale is correct, I, I think he is actually, if Beale is correct, then it helps us to know how to direct our prayers. Of course, we should pray for God's people to be delivered from the outright opponents of the gospel out there in the unbelieving world. Of course, we should pray that missionaries can go forth into hostile places and carry the word of the Lord unabated, unhindered. We should pray for those things, but it also means we need to be praying for the more subtle opposition that grows up in our own native soil. Think about it for a minute. Think about which movement is more likely to infiltrate the church and poison the next generation of Christian witness. Are we in more danger from the new atheists or from the new morality? Are we more likely to lose ground to the teachers who say outright that the Bible is garbage? Are we more in danger from the ones that say, you know, the Bible's pretty good mostly so long as you can retool these parts that don't fit with this cultural moment right here, right now? The children who are growing up in this church when they go off to college, are they more likely to be influenced by conservative Islam or progressive Christianity. It helps us to know where to direct our prayers, how to ask the Lord for the security of his people. But it also uh, helps us to have confidence in prayer. This really is where Paul's uh, petitions are trending. You you notice this play on words between the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. He says, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. It's a promise of of spiritual establishment, of a security against the assaults of Satan. And again, the context here is key, because verse 3 is virtually a repetition and expansion of the prayer that Paul prayed at the end of chapter 2. Flip back, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We can have confidence. We can have confidence in our prayer. There are things out there, there are opponents to the gospel, but, but Christ is faithful. 
Right? We pray for the church and we seek the security of God's people. We can have confidence. We can have confidence in prayer, not because of us, not from ourselves, not because we're strong enough to stand against opposition. Our confidence doesn't come from what we've done or what we can do. Our confidence comes from who God is. In the Hebrew Scriptures, faithfulness is one of the primary attributes of God's character. We confessed it together today from Psalm 117. Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his word is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 145. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. We can multiply example after example after example. To know the Lord in the scriptures is to know the God who is absolutely, utterly, incontrovertibly faithful. He is the God who makes a promise and delivers on what he says. And by the pen of Paul in the New Testament, the faithfulness of Yahweh is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word Lord to speak of Jesus. Did you hear what we were reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today? But God raised the Lord. When Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful, he means Jesus Christ, our Savior, is faithful. Jesus is the Lord who proved his faithfulness to deliver his bride to himself. He's the one who died. He's the one who rose again to remove every spot or wrinkle or blemish of sin. He's the one who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who will never abandon the work of his hands. He's the one who will not fail to bring to completion the work that he begins in his people by his spirit. And so the apostles reaching out to the church and saying, brothers and sisters, let's pray for one another. Let's seek the security that comes from the faithfulness of Christ. Let's pray with the confidence that only his unchanging goodness can give us. Confidence that he is able to keep us and able to guard us and able to make us stand with him. Well, then what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who prays with confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. With confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, they pray for the victory of the gospel. They pray for the security of God's people. Thirdly, a Christian has confidence to pray for the fruitfulness of the church. Fruitfulness of the church. If there's anything that I have learned over the last 10 or so years of, of reading Bible scholars and Bible commentaries... It's that Bible scholars and Bible commentaries seem to have a knack, almost a spiritual gift, if it were one, for pointing out problems in the text that normal people would never notice in a million years and probably don't even need to notice. Take verse 4, for example. Uh, It's clear there's a shift in the text. You see that Paul has been speaking about ministry. He's been speaking uh, about stability, but in verse 4 he speaks about obedience. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. 
That last word, command, is important. Clearly, Paul is moving toward the last reason that he has for writing this letter. Starting in verse 6, he's going to take up the issue of this group of lazy people who have decided that as they wait for the return of Christ, they don't need to work. They'll just sponge off the rest of the Christian community. How nice that these Christians are all so generous, and can't we be generous together, and wouldn't it be nice if you were generous to me? Now, Paul has some pretty strong words for these loafers, and most of his strong words are framed in the dynamic of command and obedience. You don't have to read the whole passage. Just let your eyes pass over those verses. You see the language of command show up in verse 6. You see it in verse 10. You see it again in verse 12. Paul has a touchy situation to deal with in Thessalonica. It is made more touchy by the fact that it seems like he's already tried to deal with this issue before. You remember that back in his first letter, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he had to tell them to live quietly, mind their own affairs, and work with their hands. Because some people were not doing that. You remember that as he closed out his letter, he had to tell the church body to, he says, admonish those who are idle among them. There is this growing problem in the church in Thessalonica, and now here comes Paul to take a second swing at this moral problem developing in the church. That brings us back to our less than helpful scholars and commentaries. Because some of them say that what Paul is doing in verse 4 is that he's trying to take a sneaky way into dealing with this issue rather than hitting it head on. They say that Paul spends verse 4 buttering these people up, telling them how proud he is, the way that, you know, you always listen to the words that I have to send to you. You always obey what I command, so I know it won't be any different this time, right? They say that he only does it so that they won't put up such a fight when he has to tell them later to get off the couch and get to work the way that a Christian should. We could respond to that uh, situation or that insinuation Uh, with a few things. First, I I think whatever you might want to say about Paul, you can't say he's afraid to tackle a problem head on. If you don't believe me, spend your afternoon rereading Galatians or pay attention to our readings in 1 Corinthians or read most of the other New Testament letters that he's written that he's dealing with problems head on in the church. No, he's not trying to skirt the issue. Second, this is what parents do for their children all the time. Not because you're afraid of your kid's reaction. Not because you're you're trying to trick them into obedience, because you know that as a parent, it's better to temper your commands with encouragement. And so what do you say to them? You you say things like, uh, you know, I know you can do this. I watched you work really hard studying and preparing for that last quiz, and, and you got a pretty good grade. And I know that that you know these things. And and if you only take the time to put in the effort to do the study, there's no reason you should come away from this test with less than a B, and that's what I'm expecting. What's the message? The message is, get to work, kid. Right? But it's just as honest and a bit more encouraging if you also tell them what they're capable of. So he's not 
being soft and he's not being slimy. What is he doing? He is approaching this issue as a way of affirming that fruitfulness also is a part of God's plan for the church. It also comes from him. The Christian obedience is a product of the character of God being pressed into the lives of his people. Read verse 4 again. He's not inflating their egos. He's not telling them even anything fundamentally good about them. (laughs) He says, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. He doesn't say, I have utter confidence in you. He says, I have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. You know, Paul knows what it's like to deal with problem people. Paul knows, he realizes, as well as you do, that difficult people always go on being difficult until something changes them at the ground level. And he's telling them, I may not have any confidence in you, but I have confidence about you because I have confidence in someone else. He's telling them that he can hope for their obedience because of the Lord who is able to make his people fruitful. Actually, this is the perfect logical conclusion for everything he's been telling us up to this point in the last three verses. He said there are some people who are evil and out of place. Some people who have no faith. Even people in the church sometimes become positive obstacles to the progress of the gospel. But not you, he says. Not you because the Lord Jesus is at work. Not you because... He is faithful, and he's the one who's able to give you roots into your Christian conviction. He's able to protect you from the enemy of your soul. He can be trusted implicitly, and by the way, when he does his work in you, he's also going to do the work of sanctification. He's going to mold you, and he's going to shape you, and he's going to make you more like himself, one act of obedience after another. One moral issue after another. Well, you also know what it is to deal with problem people. Some of you probably work with one. Some of you have married one. Uh, Some of you see one every morning in the mirror. I know I do. And maybe, like me, you've grown tired of waiting for the problem people in your life to change. Especially if that person's you. Paul's letting us know that it's not necessary to have any confidence in the problem people that we deal with, so long as we have confidence that the Lord can do far more than we can imagine in his church. More than we would ever dare allow ourselves to expect, almost. So the apostle adds this last prayer in verse 5. It's a prayer for obedience. By the working of God's spirit, it's a prayer for the character of God to be squeezed into his people. It's a prayer for fruitfulness as the Lord who is faithful makes us more like himself. And so as we think about our own faith and our own prayer and our own failures to produce fruitfulness, I think actually it's a pretty good place to close. It's a pretty good benediction. And so dear church, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. 
Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you, by your Holy Spirit, make us to take on the character of Christ, not so that we would be saved, but because you have called us to yourself in salvation. You, Lord, who give us faith, give us justification. And you who give us justification, work sanctification in us to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray that you would do that and pray that you would give us all confidence in our prayer. Not because of what we see in ourselves, but because of what we know of the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithfulness for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We come now to a table that proclaims to us the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who gave us this sign gave it to us as a reminder uh, that as he died and as he rose again, so also will he come. He'll come to take us to where he is, to give us life and satisfaction in his presence, to give us fullness of joy at his right hand, and to take away the sins that we commit on a regular basis. That's why we come to this table on a regular basis. Because we need that reminder of his faithfulness in the face of our faithlessness. And so this table is set with signs, tangible symbols of of bread and a cup to remind us of Christ's body and his blood, broken and poured out for sinners like you and me. This is a table where we come rejoicing not in what we have done, but in what he has done for us, in the gift of Christ Jesus for those who he's called to himself. If you have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a part of his church, come to this table, eat and drink by faith. Receive the promise that he will complete in you the work that he begins by his spirit. If you've not yet done that, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, allow the elements to pass. Don't eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Consider whether the Lord may be calling you to him uh, as well. We read in the gospels that as Jesus was eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this table set before us and for the Savior this table proclaims to us. Help us by your spirit to eat and drink, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find life. Remind us, Father, of your faithfulness, of your goodness to us, uh, of your mercy and your love in the Lord Jesus. Help us uh, to cling to him and to walk with you by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is my blood of the new covenant it's given for many for the remission of sins take and drink all of you Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. O gracious God and deliverer of souls, you who gave up Christ for us to redeem us in body as well. O Lord, we thank you for your gift of salvation in him. And we pray that you would give us faith in his salvation and his merit, uh, his perfection and his sacrifice until that day when we eat and drink together with you in the kingdom of God. We ask in his name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal, number 657, In Sweet Communion, Lord, with Thee. Won't you stand as we sing 657.
Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, you redeemed of the Lord. Hear God's good word for you, his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.